I don't know if you heard it the way I felt it, but while I was praying for our offering, um, I got this close. My eyes were closed. I was in a posture of prayer, and I almost stepped off the edge. And so in my heart, I, I stopped for like five seconds to collect myself. It probably was just like that. So, um, But I didn't, and so we're all good. Um, I just felt the need to confess that to you in case somebody else noticed. I want you to know I did notice, and I, it's okay. Um, I'm, but I'm going to stand back here from now on. <sighs> okay. So we, we, we start a new series today. Uh, and for a lot of you, the timing may seem convenient um, as we start to talk about how this all fits together. I promise you it's not necessarily convenient as much as it's purposeful and planful. And so I don't want you to miss the significance of what we're doing and why we're doing it. So track with me for a second here, if you would. At the beginning of the year... About two months ago, we spent a good chunk of our time talking about the need and desire for this church to lead the way in our community in revival. Okay? And the reason we talk so significantly about the, the need for this church to lead the way towards the community in revival is not for any selfish kind of reason. It's not so people will say, man, Blessed Hope is pretty awesome. I mean, I hope people think that Blessed Hope is pretty awesome. But it was because there is a sense that Vinton and Shellsburg and Urbana and Laporte and Mount Auburn and all of these surrounding areas are ripe for something called revival. And revival is when there is this mass movement of God through a community where people are are then moving towards the holiness of God and people are pursuing the holiness of God and people are putting God first in their lives. And when that happens, it starts individually. And when enough people individually start to pursue personal holiness and personal revival, then it spreads to then a congregation, okay, and other congregations. And when a community then becomes saturated with people that are sold out for the gospel, that are sold out to grow, then what happens is the community can't help but get caught up in the wave. Individuals can help it. And there are individuals, no matter what, that will try really, really hard to hold back. But by and large, the community will move. And that's what we've been pursuing this year. And so um, as, we, as we spend time talking about why church, you know, what's the reason to be part of church? Because we know that one of the things that, that is important in personal revival is showing up to church consistently. So we spent time talking about why should you be here? Can you expect to grow as a Christian if you're not here? And what are about the hangups that we have about some of the ways that we're at church? So we dealt with some of those during that series. Look, if you're just joining us, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to some of those and figure out why this becomes a necessary part of what we do. We're always talking about spending time in the Word and, and reading your Bible, and we've been pushing groups for the last six months now, being part of small groups, getting plugged in, committing to other people, other like-minded people that can help you grow up in your faith, that can hold you accountable, that can push you in that direction. And then today we start a series called Respectable Sins, which coincides perfectly with the fourth thing on this list, which is find sin in your life and ruthlessly cut it out. Listen to me. In no uncertain terms, you cannot 
grow in your faith. You cannot grow as a disciple. You cannot grow as a disciple maker. You cannot get deeper in your relationship with Jesus, and you cannot influence anybody with the gospel if you are harboring sin in your life. It won't happen in no uncertain terms. And so as we move into this part of what personal revival looks like, as we deal with this series on respectable sins, what we're actually going to be focusing on are sins that creep in, sins that kind of wiggle their way into our lives and they start to wreak havoc, but we don't really know why they wreak havoc because they're really not that big of a deal in the first place, except they are, and they do, and we need to be able to understand what they are, and we need to be able to bring them to the surface, and we need to be able to cut them completely, ruthlessly, no holds barred, no prisoners, cut them out of our lives, and that's what we deal with today. And oh, by the way, here's this other fun fact. It's Lent. Lent started Wednesday. Okay, now some of you are in the habit of practicing Lent. Some of you have never in your life practiced Lent. As a guy that spent a good portion of my childhood going to um, a Presbyterian Reformed church, we practiced Lent. And then I went on to a Southern Baptist church as a kid, and if you practiced Lent there, man, they were going to make fun of you. Okay, whatever. Just is what it is. Different styles. See, because Lent is an extra biblical thing. So if you don't practice Lent, there's nothing bad about you because you don't practice Lent. If you practice Lent, though, just because it's extra biblical doesn't make it bad. It's just, it's this tension of what works and what doesn't and what do we need and what doesn't. And I have got no issues with Lent. I like Lent. But this year, may I suggest something to you. As we enter into this Respectable Sin series, I'm less concerned with you cutting salt or coffee or that almighty awful carb out of your diet than I am with you ruthlessly bringing sin to the surface and cutting it out of your life so that you can figure out what it really means to be holy. You notice the theme in our music, holy, 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 everything is about a holy God. And God tells us, look, you be holy. Why? Because I'm holy. And that's the requirement. And that's what's asked of us as Christians. And so that's the path that we're on together. And the problem with sin is, as soon as we start talking about respectable sins, there's a couple of questions that some of you have, and we're going to deal with these. So one question is, and this is a thing that Christians love to say, and by the way, it sounds dumb, and I know it sounds dumb, um, and we're going to talk about the answer and why the answer is yes and no. Okay, but we ask the question, does God grade sin? Is all sin really the same to a holy God? Okay, and so you've heard that argument. Usually you hear that argument from people that want you to leave their sin alone, right? Um, this is an argument that strongly comes um, from, um, and it's really come to the surface, at least for me and my counseling and my conversations in the last decade with folks in the homosexual community. Okay, because what they might say is, okay, Matt, maybe God says this is wrong, but God says all sin is wrong. And they look at me and they're like, hey, Hans, you ever think that maybe you have a problem with eating too much food? 
Do you ever think maybe that you're a little gluttonous? We'll deal. But then they'll say, so Matt, how is that sin any better than this sin? And they're like, aha, theological trump card, nailed it. And then we have to navigate this a little bit. So does God really grade sin? Is all sin really the same? And I'm going to give you the best theological answer that I can give you to this question. And it will not satisfy you, and we can have a more personal conversation about it later. Knock on my office door, shoot me an email, give me a call, whatever. But here's the answer. Are you ready for this? Yes and no. That's it. Is all sin the same? Yes. All sin is the same to a holy God. And no. Seriously? Is all sin the same? You know, when Jesus says, look, 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 you've heard that you shouldn't murder. But I tell you, if you're angry in your heart, you're guilty already of murder. Is Jesus really saying in that instance, your anger towards somebody is the same as you murdering that person? No, of course not. Okay? That's not the, de- that's not the way it works. Of course, at the same time, why would Jesus say it if it wasn't true? And so we wrestle with this. And so let me tell you just briefly how we can break this down. And again, let's have more conversations about this another time. But, but understand this, okay? The idea is that all sin, smallest to the biggest, is heinous to a holy God. That's a word I've never used in a sermon before. I don't know if I've used that word since like seventh grade. Okay? But all sin is heinous sin when it's thrown at a God who is holy and perfect and right always. All sin, the smallest sin, will separate me from God. All of it will. So I could have lived an absolutely perfect life. And then I lied. Okay? as opposed to somebody else who could have lived an absolutely perfect life and then committed murder. That murder and my lie will both separate me eternally from a perfect, holy, righteous God. The Bible teaches that. It's clear. In case you're confused, I've sinned a whole lot more than just that one lie. Okay? But the Bible teaches that both of those will separate you from God. But God does not respond temporally to those sins in the same way. In fact, if we read through the books of law in the Old Testament, for some sins, he says, you know what? You take that offender, you take them outside of the city, you take them past the city limits, outside of the camp, you pick up a rock and you throw the rocks at them until they're dead. That's the punishment for some sin. Other sins are other punishments. You see, so... Temporally speaking, God deals with sin differently. Eternally speaking, every sin is problematic because every sin separates us from God. The good news is, though, as Christians, as Christians, we're not separated anymore. And so, therefore, we don't have to wrestle with the fact that all sins are on the same. Yeah, we want to root it out. Yeah, we want to cut it out. But God will deal with our sin differently. Some sin, he will give you over to your natural consequences of that sin. Other sin, 
he will step in and discipline. The natural consequences for some sin are simpler. The natural consequences for other sins are not so simple. Because they're different, okay? So understand that. Yes, they're, they're the same in terms of an eternal perspective, but no, temporally, okay, vertically, I'm sorry, horizontally, they're not the same. And so we start to get in this. We say, well, what is a respectable sin? Well, respectable sin is something that we do. It's something we commit that most people are okay with. That most people have no problem with. Even people in the church sometimes don't have a problem with this sin. Or we think, man, we really ought to clean that up, but we're not going to focus on it. It's too awkward to talk about. Or I don't really want to mess with that because it's not that big of a deal. I mean, yeah, yeah, you know, I, I just heard you say that, but it's not really as bad as it could have been, so we'll just brush. A respectable sin is something that people typically look at as okay, even though it's not okay, not to a holy God, and it's not going to help in our lives. And there's two problems with this, okay? And this is kind of a longer introduction than we, than we normally have, but, but since we're kicking off this series, I really want you to get this. Okay, the two problems with respectable sins, I don't care how respectable they are, I don't care how neat they look, I don't care how polished they are, I don't care. Okay, I don't care. And the reason I don't care is because they will always cause you a problem. Any sin that you harbor in your life is going to drive a wedge between you and God. I'm not saying that when you have a sin in your life, a respectable sin that happens in your life, that all of a sudden you and God aren't going to be... Um, okay, that, that there won't be salvation imparted to you, that God's going to take away his presence in your life. I'm not saying that, but your ability to, to go to God, your ability to trust God, your ability to just rest in him, your ability to, to, to put anxiety behind you and put all of those things behind you and just rely on the God of the universe, all of that goes away when you have sin that's wedged in your life. And you won't be able to really experience the grace of God in your life until you cut that sin out. That's one problem. It's a big one. But the other one is this. Well, you ever buy Chinese food? Who likes to go to Lotus? I enjoy going to Lotus. And um, I eat all of my Chinese food. Carrie likes to take some home with her. You ever notice how they put the Chinese food in this little styrofoam container and then they put it in the plastic bag that you're supposed to carry. And then it's like a bomb because you have to carry it exactly, perfectly straight and still because what always happens? It all spills out all over the bottom. See, that's the problem with sin. We think we can contain it, but you can't contain it. You think you can put it in this container and put the lid on it and it's going to be fine and it won't affect any other area of your life that it'll just stay right here in this one little spot and it'll just stay. But you know as well as I do that it's going to pour out the sides, it's going to make a mess of everything, and that eventually it's going to ruin things. And so we have to start to deal with sin the way that it happens. All right, so let's jump in. Week one of this Respectable Sins series, we're going to talk about this respectable sin. This respectable sin is simply called self-control. See, the problem with self-control or a lack of self-control is that what it does is it takes things that are generally okay 
and it turns them into things that have become sinful in my life. And so this is the one we start with, and I'm going to be honest with you, this is the most complicated one. This is the most complicated one because we're not talking about things that are necessarily bad for you that you should avoid because they're sin. Okay? I'm going to give you a real quick, easy, clean example of this, and we'll get more into this a little bit, but, but okay, let's talk about sex. When you watch pornography, when you log onto your computer or I don't know, whatever else you do, okay, and you watch pornography, there is no doubt in your mind, there is no confusion that you are engaging in sin. That's it. Pornography is sin. It's, it's, a, it, it, it's this terrible, awful bastardization of something that God meant to be awesome, and we're using it in a way to, to pursue pleasure instead of godliness, and it's bad, and it's no good, and it's awful. There's no question about that. However, when you watch certain things on TV, now the line gets a little fuzzier, doesn't it? Right? When I watch this, there's no doubt in my mind that I'm engaging in something that's sinful. But when I watch this, eh, maybe it is, maybe it's not, right? I mean, after all, it is the Miss Universe contest. And the swimsuit competition is a very legitimate part of that contest. Right? And it's the Victoria's Secret lingerie show. And why wouldn't we want to watch that? I mean, we need to know what the newest styles in lingerie are. <laughs> or it's my Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue. See, what happens with this issue of self-control and why it gets to be so hard for us is because we're naturally wired to desire more. We want more. We want better. We want bigger. We want it all. It's in our heart to want that. But then what happens is we take okay things and we pursue them to the ends of the earth over and above where God is. And so ultimately, we end up ruining our relationship with God. We end up ruining things because we're over-pursuing things that were meant for our pleasure, but they were never meant for us to have over and above everything else. And it's the problem, and it's where this starts to get in trouble for us. And Proverbs tells us this, the book of wisdom simply, the book of wisdom simply says, look, a person, that's really small today. I think I might have done something wrong on that. Sorry, but you can, you can strain and see it, hopefully. A person without self-control is like a city with broken down walls. Bless you. A person without self-control is like a city with broken down walls. There's no boundaries. There's no place to begin. There's no place to stop. There's no safety. There's nothing. Okay? Uh, in the time that, that Solomon wrote this, a city with broken down walls was a city of contempt, a city to be scorned. It was a city of reproach. It was seen as a city that God had cast judgment on. And Solomon says, look, when you lack self-control, a man, a woman, a teenager, a child with no self-control, a child that says yes, or a man or a woman that says yes far too often to something that was designed for good, but that you're taking it to an extreme, all of a sudden you are a man of reproach and scorn. And think about your life. You know that. 
You know that in your life. You know people like that. Maybe you've experienced that with your own things before, but when you take something to an extreme, judgment happens. And so let's deal with this. First thing we need to understand is this. First thing, we're on like our 12th thing, but the 12th thing we need to understand is this, okay? I get it. You were wired this way. Ecclesiastes 3.11 tells you that as a human being, God has actually written eternity in the human heart. That there is part of you that is hardwired for eternity. That means, now get this, this is why this is so important to you. And if you've ever struggled with, with finding your soul satisfaction, when I say soul satisfaction, I hope you understand what I mean, because there's part of us that's always longing for more. It's the part that, that thinks, I need that, I need that, I need that, I've got it. Oh, nuts. It's not what I thought it was going to be. So now I need that, and I need that, and I'm going to go after it, and I'm going to get it, and I'm going to have it, and I'm going to be satisfied for like 30 seconds. Because, oh, nuts. It's not what I thought it was going to be. And so I keep striving, I keep pushing, I keep moving for more, 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 always thinking that I'm going to get something, and it never works out. It's my soul satisfaction. It's what I long for. You were actually given that drive by the God of the universe that created you intimately. God actually created you with a desire in your heart for eternity, which is something that transcends everything temporal, everything temporary, everything worldly. If you've ever wondered why it is that you can't find satisfaction in stuff, it's because you were never meant to. Okay? And it's because if in your mind only stuff brings you satisfaction then you'll never get it because it doesn't say that God has planted cool temporary stuff in your heart. It doesn't say that God has planted this thing that will last for just a season, a desire for that in your heart. No, it says God has planted eternity in your heart. So you will always want more and better. You are hardwired for more and better. And you won't find satisfaction in temporary things. You just won't. Okay, that's the way this goes. And that's one of the reasons why self-control is so problematic for us, right? Because we experience something and we just want more of it. And we need more of it. And we just want to have all that we can get, but it never satisfies. It never fulfills. Okay. And so you might be thinking now, well then, okay, Matt, what are we supposed to do about it? Okay. Well, there's good news. And the good news the good news is simply this. The grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. See, now what we're going to do is we're going to walk through this text. And this is, this is Paul writing, okay? Um, this is Paul writing to Titus, okay? He's writing to his protege, to, to someone that he's pouring into and that he's mentoring. And the reason he's writing this letter is because he wants him to know everything that's going to be happening. And, and Titus is actually going to be pastoring or serving in this church. And Paul's trying to minister into him and telling him, look, this is what's going to happen. Yes, people are going to be reaching and striving and they're going to want and they're going to desire and they're going to step too far and they're going to do too much. But he says, look at this. He says, understand this. You were written um, or you were created with eternity written on your heart. You've always been looking for this next thing. You've always been wanting to grow more and more and accomplish more and more and be more and more and have more and more and all of it. He says, but, but Timothy comes in, he says, but Titus, understand this. The grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. This is actually a pretty big deal 
Because that thing that you've been longing for, the thing that has left that hole in your life that you've been trying to fill with food, there's times I have a mirror, or sex, or stuff that drives you into heavy debt, or position that causes you to, to, uh, to neglect family and pursue something else, or, or friendships, or whatever, you name it. The thing that's caused you to pursue the wrong thing. You know, it's eternal, not temporary. And so you'll never be satisfied. You'll never be satisfied. You'll never be satisfied. But then Paul comes in and he says, look, Titus, you don't have to fall into that trap and don't let your people fall into that trap because the grace of God, that eternal thing that offers salvation, eternity has appeared to all people. That thing that your heart most desperately desires the thing that you were hardwired to receive, the thing that you have been looking under every rock to have in all of the wrong places, it's appeared. It's the grace of God that offers salvation to all people. It's there. Now you can be satisfied. Now your soul can rest. Now you can stop trying to fill it with every little thing that seems nice. Okay, and so there's something that we really got to get. Look, if the need has been met in God's grace, then why do we still struggle with longing? See, so some of you here are, are, are walking through this and you're seeing this. Okay, you're looking at this. Okay, your, your eternal longing um, and your predisposition to search for better and more and to strive, that's been satiated with the grace of God, with Jesus Christ. And so you're thinking to yourself, well, if that's true as a Christian, no longer am I trying to search for something to fill me. Why as a Christian am I still searching for something to fill me? Because if we're honest, we all do that. What we're saying is, look, that need is satiated. As a Christian, you have the grace of God in your life. You have Jesus Christ. You don't need to, to search for what satisfies your soul anymore. And you're looking at me, and I'm looking at you, and we're saying, but we still do it. We still do it. I mean, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, then, then maybe you have a different question, which is, okay, is it really true that Jesus will satisfy me? That's really what you want to know. If you're not a Christian here this morning, you're wanting to know, does Jesus really satisfy my soul? Yes. Except you're smart enough that you're looking around in the room and you're going, okay, then how come there's a room full of Christians? How come there's a room full of Christians that keep running after stuff that they don't need anymore? Why is there a room full of Christians that struggle with self-control if all of a sudden my deepest longing and all of my need that have been written on my heart is finally satisfied in the grace of God. Why do I keep running? Why do I keep striving for things that were never meant to satisfy me? And guys, we've got to figure that out. We've got to figure it out for two reasons. One is because when I continue to chase and I continue to overindulge and I continue to do that again, it drives that wedge between myself and God. And two, it it paints a terrible picture It paints a terrible picture. Listen to me. I mean, listen, I need you to hear me on this. You cannot go to a friend that you have, a family member, a coworker, somebody that desperately needs Jesus and tell them, listen, 
You need Jesus. Jesus will complete you. Jesus will make everything right. Jesus will forgive you. Jesus will satisfy you. You can't rightly go tell them that if they're going to look at your life and they're going to see that you're still searching and that you're still hungry and that you're still desperate. So what, is it hopeless? It's not hopeless. Look, Paul keeps talking. Look what he says here. He says, uh, he's talking, continuing to, to tell Titus some things, and he says, the grace of God, that thing that your heart longs for, it's appeared, it's here, it's come to offer salvation, that grace, but Jesus Christ has appeared, he offers salvation to all people. And then he says, okay, that grace, here's what it does now when you decide to grow up. It teaches you to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Hey, do you ever wonder why we harp so much on the idea that you need to grow? I mean, honestly, have you ever, have you ever wondered why it's so important to us that you grow? Why we keep saying that you need to grow up in your faith? Why we keep saying that you can't just sin and be okay with it? Why we keep saying that you, you need to get plugged into a small group? Why we keep saying that you need to start serving in some capacity? Why we, why we say that you need to read your Bible every single day and show up on Sundays and pray and you need to do all of these things? We say that you need to do them because the only way this ever makes sense, the only way I can get past my longing, Paul says, look, I've got the answer for you. It's the grace of God, Jesus Christ. It's available for salvation. Anybody that wants to choose it. And here's what it does. It teaches us when we allow it to say no to stupidity, to say no to ungodliness, to say no to worldly passions, to say no to temporary stuff that will never last. The grace of God, when you allow it, when you plug in, when you get moving, allows you to say no to things that aren't good for you. To say no to too much. That's the reality. Some of us see what happened is we became a Christian. Some of you, it was like last week. For some of you, it was... 10 years ago. For some of you, it was when you were 11. But we became a Christian, and we just assumed that our desires would change. I became a Christian, and I assumed that because I'm a Christian, now I won't want sin anymore. Or that because I'm a Christian, I won't want to do things that I used to want to do. I mean, I've had that conversation with people in any number of scenarios. You know, Matt, I assume that when I became a Christian, or I'm sorry, I assume that when I got married, I wouldn't be tempted to look at porn anymore because I'd be married. Or I assumed that when I entered into that diet plan, I wouldn't be tempted with cheesecake. Okay? Or I assumed, I assumed that when I finally got um, that new car, I'd stop driving around the car lot trying to pick out my next new car. Whatever it is, right? But, but we assume that somehow when I finally get this, that everything else will fall into place and it will make sense. The problem is it doesn't work that way. When we become Christians, all of our old desires don't just go away. But now we have the tools to battle. 
We have the grace of God. We have the Holy Spirit. We have all of these things that will help us put them aside. But here's what it is. You have to learn grace teaches you when you sit under its teaching. Listen, have you ever had somebody teach you something when you refuse to learn? I had all kinds of people try to teach me geometry. I refused to learn it. They gave me homework. I didn't do it. They offered me tutoring. I didn't show up. They, they offered me the opportunity to retake tests that I'd bombed. After school. After school. No, thank you. I had people try to teach me plenty of things, but I wasn't willing to learn. See, and, and what Paul's saying here is, look, the grace of God is here. The thing that your heart has always wanted more than anything else, it has arrived, and it is here, and it is available if you want it. And if you let it, it will teach you how to say yes to the right things and how to say no to the wrong things. And you see this last part here. Why do we do that? We do that because all of this helps us. All of this moves us along in the process. And what are we doing? By the way, this is where our namesake comes from as a church, because we're waiting. What are we waiting for? We're waiting for the blessed hope. And the blessed hope is Jesus, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is what we're waiting for, okay? This is the theology of self-control, right? Self-control is a problem in our sinful lives because God wrote eternity on our hearts, which means we're always craving more and more. We always want more and more, okay? But when we become Christians, we understand that what we've always desired is available in the grace of God through Jesus Christ. And when we let it, when we let him, he will teach us to say no to the wrong things and yes to the right things, all while waiting for him to return. This is the story of self-control in the life of a Christian. It's not simple, but it's necessary, okay? And it's necessary because of the instructions that we give. Look at this in Ephesians 5. Be careful how you live. Don't live like fools, but like those who are wise. Make the most of every opportunity in these evil days. Don't act thoughtlessly, but understand what the Lord wants you to do. And then he uses this example. Don't be drunk with wine because that ruins your life. But you could plug in anything there. Don't pursue anything to the point of destruction. You know what he's really saying there? Have self-control. So let's talk. A couple of things that we need to wrestle with with self-control. First thing is our natural inclination is to do too much of a good thing. Too much of something that's okay will lead us away from God. It will get us stuck in ungodliness instead of godliness. These things aren't sins. I'm going to be really clear with you. I do not view anything on that list as sinful. Okay? Despite my Southern Baptist upbringing wasn't really an upbringing as so much. It was like a decade. Okay? I don't view anything on that list as sinful. But overindulgence in anything on that list is sinful. Because when I overindulge in okay things, it robs the glory of God. It robs Jesus Christ from my life. And it puts something else in the place. 
And the number one thing there for me, oh man, it's a tight race. But I, I overindulge in things, TV, food, things that then will rob from me. Because you know what I'm not doing as I'm watching TV for the third hour of the night? I'm not playing with my kids. I'm not checking on my wife's heart. I'm not reading my Bible. I am not heartbroken in prayer for people that need me to be heartbroken in prayer for them. There's nothing wrong with TV, but when I put it up against what I should be doing, man, I've got self-control issues. You know, alcohol, you want to have a drink, have a drink. But it's Friday and you're done for the week and you want to get drunk, then you've got self-control issues. If you're going to wake up in the morning and you're going to be hungover, you've got self-control issues. Because you're to be filled with the Holy Spirit, not with a counterfeit. Possessions? Come on. Debt and debt and more debt because I need more stuff. See, there's nothing wrong with stuff. There's nothing wrong with me having stuff. But you know what's happened in my life? And actually, we're so much better at this than we used to be. But, but for a long time, we were really stuck in this. You know what happened? Is my ability to be generous with the resources God had given me, my ability to be generous with them was severely stunted because I ran after things that were okay, but in excess, they turned sinful. So I had a bunch of stuff and no resources to be generous with the people that God put in my life. Work? I mean, some of us turn that into something it was never intended to be. Listen, we practice self-control. We recognize our propensity to chase after things too much. Things that will replace the role God should have in my life. They're not things that are bad in and of themselves. Okay? Quick example of that, and then we'll, we'll start with, with this. Well, just when Carrie and I started dating, okay, this isn't like, I'm not saying Carrie is like God. Okay, um, this is just, it, it's a metaphor. Okay, but when Carrie and I started dating, that relationship should have been primary to me. Guess what relationship was primary to me? It was the Cubs. It was the Cubs. I kid you not, every date we had, and I worked two jobs at the time, so there wasn't a ton of free time, but the free time I had, right, was worked around Cubs games that I would sit and I would watch. And I remember Carrie came to me one day and she said, hey, I looked at the schedule. They have 162 of those every year. <laughs> this won't work. There's nothing wrong with this, but it directly impedes what I should be about. We've got to make this decision. And you know what? It's not just okay things that we overindulge in, but here's the other part of that. And there's just two I put on this list, but there's things that are not okay, but the world says they're okay. There are things that aren't okay, but the world says they're okay. And so we overindulge or we indulge even a little bit in things. I mean, I don't need you to raise your hand here at all, but I'm not dumb. 
Okay, I mean, let's be as clear as we can possibly be here. I'm not stupid. I haven't asked, you haven't had to lie to me, but I know there are a good chunk of in here that smoke marijuana. Because you've decided that it should be okay. Because it doesn't affect you poorly, maybe because it makes you feel good, maybe because of any number of reasons. But listen to me. It's not legal, therefore God says it's not okay, therefore it's not something you should be pursuing. And even though the world says it's probably okay, it doesn't mean that God ever said, yes, you can have that. So sometimes we pursue something that's okay and we go too far, and sometimes we dabble in things that the world says are okay, but we know better. We just know better. That's a self-control issue too. And those are sins we have to cut out of our lives. And we cut them out of our lives, guys, because we will not grow until we do. We just won't. Okay? And so here's what I want you to do. I want you to cut things out of your life that don't fit. Anything that takes God's position, whether it's good or okay or not, I want it out of my life. I want it out of yours. And the way to do that is through something called accountability. If you flip your, if you got a bulletin and you flip your sermon notes page over, I provided you with a very short list of accountability questions. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to challenge you over the next six weeks. This series is six weeks long, and I'm going to challenge you, okay? My challenge to you is to find an accountability partner. Find someone. Find someone that will tell you the truth. Find someone that will commit to you, okay? And I'm going to tell you this right now. I'm going to find someone, and it's not going to be my wife, okay? Because it's not the best relationship for accountability, especially as we start to get into some of these other things. I mean, this is a good relationship, but when it comes to accountability, it's best to find someone of the same sex, the same gender. It's best to find someone um, that you can sit down with and have honest conversations. I'm going to tell you this, it's best to find two other people, not one. If you can find one, that's great. If you can find two other people, that's even better. Because here's the thing. I've been a part of accountability relationships with two people before where we've convinced each other that something is okay that we both really knew wasn't. But when you have a third person in there to look at you both like you're idiots, that's really helpful. But I want to encourage you to find an accountability partner. If you're trying and you can't, come talk to me and I'll help hook you up. And these aren't the only list of questions that you can ask each other, but that's a start. And we'll talk some more about this next week. But the reason for this is because God's worth it. And so I'm going to ask the men, and and we're running a little bit over today because uh, we're going to get into communion here in a second, but I'll ask the men that are going to serve communion to come up, okay? And the reason I'm asking them uh, to come up, and the reason that we've connected communion to this today is simply this. God is holy. A holy God requires holiness from his people. 
That was the whole point of the cross. That's the point of communion. You get that, right? Um, that, that God, oh, and our praise team, yeah, our praise team can come on up too. That's, that's the whole point of the cross, right? A holy God requires holiness from his people. We are not holy, so the grace of God and the person of Jesus Christ comes to the cross to provide salvation and holiness to those that will pursue it. That's the whole point of the cross, okay? But Paul tells us in the book of Corinthians that here's what happens. He says, some people have dishonored the cross. People dishonor the cross. They dishonor the cross because what happens is they take communion, this whole picture of what God did on the cross, the body being broken, the blood being poured out. They take this whole picture of what happened on the cross and they spit on it. They spit on it by saying, thank you, Jesus, for your sacrifice. I will take all of the perks and I will not work at all to cut sin out of my life. I will be good with my sin. You said no, it's hard for me to get out of the sin, so I'm just going to keep doing it all the while saying thanks for your grace. It doesn't work that way. Paul says people dishonor the cross when they do that. And so here's what I'm going to ask you to do. As we pray and we get ready to take communion, I'm just going to ask you very simply to check your heart. And if there's things that you need to confess right now and a promise you need to make to God and decisions you need to make about cutting sin out of your life, then do that. Do that as you come and partake in communion. If you're not ready, choose to stay sitting right where you are and let it, let it go by you this morning. But it's critically important that we don't profane the cross, but that we understand what we're doing. And what we're doing is we're saying, yes, God, I know what you did. I know what it was like. I know how it hurt. And I know it was for me to pursue you. And I take it seriously. You don't want to harbor sin and then take communion and say, thanks, God, but I'm going to keep doing what I always did. It's not a good plan. Okay? And so what we do here for communion is we practice open communion as simply and as wonderfully as we can based on, on what we read. And what we read is that on that night, Jesus broke the bread. He said, this is my body. It's going to be broken for you. That's the sacrifice on the cross that he talks about. Do this. Eat this. Remember me. And he pours the cup and he says, this, this is the cup. This is the drink. This is uh, my blood. It's going to be poured out for you. Remember the new covenant when you drink it. Celebrate the new covenant when you drink it. Okay, and we practice open communion here which means that if you are a Christian, you are welcome to participate. This table's open and it's for you. But I'm gonna ask that you be reflective and that you take it seriously. And then after we've had communion, okay, after you take communion, feel free to dismiss. We will not come back together. Our praise team's gonna be singing and playing for us during this time, but feel free to dismiss. Go collect your children. Um, if you've got kids downstairs, um, but just do so again in an attitude of, of thankfulness to what God's done. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, God, thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you've done. Thank you for the grace that you've poured out on us. God, we love you and we praise you. We thank you for the truth that you sacrificed your son. He willingly laid his life down so that the grace of God could be available for salvation to all of us, that our heart's desire could be met. We ask you to take that and, and to, to understand it and to revel in it and then to pursue holiness because of it. God, we love you and praise you. Amen.